1: Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars. Oh, and Two-Door Cinema Club.
2: Welcome to the NFL Legends Podcast, an NFL podcast for the players, by the players. Here is your host, 14-year NFL veteran and Hall of Famer, Aeneas Williams.
3: Hello and welcome to the NFL Legends Podcast. I am Aeneas Williams. Today, our guest is NFL legend, my former teammate, the Seth Joiner. And I'll tell you why I say the shortly. Who, well, in addition to playing 13 seasons in the league and being a Super Bowl champion, also host an NFL podcast, The Seth Joiner Show. Welcome, Seth.
2: Aeneas, it's a pleasure to be with you, my friend. I'm glad that you're doing well, and uh, I'm looking forward to this uh, this time of chatting with you, my friend.
3: We've been doing this podcast for over three years, Seth, and I really haven't had a lot of my teammates that I've had the opportunity to be on the podcast. So this is special for me. You've had former teammates on. You just had Randall Cunningham, sound like, on Mm-hmm. on your show and you've had we were called the Mount Rushmore of uh, players from the Philadelphia Eagles. Right. What was it like having conversations with those guys?
2: Well, it's really interesting because um, you know, one of the one of the greatest shows that I had, I had Randall, I had Ron Jaworski, I had Donovan McNabb and I had Michael Vick all on the same show. I mean, I came up with the idea, you know, okay, if quarterback is the most important position on the field, you got, you know, the four greatest quarterback icons almost, you know, in the present day history of the of the, of the the organization. So why not have those guys come on? They're all from different eras. And have them talk about, you know, uh, their experience being a Philadelphia Eagle, their experience in the league. And let me tell you, my show is supposed to be an hour. We went an hour and 45 minutes. You know, once once I got everybody ramped up, I mean they were just firing away and it was so organic. I just sat back and just let them let them go. And and it was a phenomenal, phenomenal show.
3: Yo, know, it's interesting. You had Michael Vick on, you had uh, Randall Cunningham. I would dare say today's young quarterbacks remind me of those two guys. When it comes down to Russell Wilson, Kyle Murray, we have the hype. Right. Uh, supposedly, at one time, impediment. And then you had the Duck Fluties, you had uh, John Elways, the mobile guys. So Justin Herbert, big old guys that are mobile. Seth, what would it have been like for you playing today with what I called the quarterback? When we were playing, I thought the most vulnerable defense was a defense playing against a mobile quarterback who not only could run. But had the ability to throw the ball. Right. What do you think it would have been like when you playing during this era?
2: Well, it's it always created a problem because you know, sitting back watching Randall Cunningham grow and come into his own, and then Michael Vick come in and take, you know, the league by storm, those guys were the genesis of the, you know, the triple threat quarterback. And and it, it, it would have been difficult. I don't know. Sometimes I watch defense today and I wonder how is it possible that you can stop these guys? But you know, you know, playing under Buddy, we were a pressure defense, and we were all about applying pressure to the quarterback position. Um, the greatest hindrance that you have when defensively, when you're trying to stop a guy like a Kyler Murray, a Lamar Jackson, you know, a Justin Herbert, these guys that can move around and make plays, is trying to keep these guys bottled up and contained. Right, and it's 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 a tough thing to do when you only rush four. Because you're always going to have these gaps, you know, in your defensive line when you got, you know, your linemen and their focus is, you know, getting sacks, getting sacks, getting sacks, you know. So sometimes they lose the discipline of lane integrity and making sure that they keep the quarterback in the pocket. And these quarterbacks are smart enough to understand the game and know now that, you know, hey, when I read, you know, man to man in passing situations, when the play breaks down, everybody's got their backs turned whether you're single high or two high safety, you know, those safeties are 20, 30 yards deep. So I'm gonna pick up 15, 20 yards before the defense can even react. And they're smart enough to understand that when I read zone pre-snap, that I'm scrambling to buy time. I'm not trying to cross the line of scrimmage and get yards. I'm trying to scramble to buy time for my guys to uncover and find a hole where I can actually complete, complete passes. So it's a tough task today, you know, no doubt, you know, me playing in, in today's NFL or us playing defensively in today's version of offensive football would have been a major, major challenge.
3: And that's what I was thinking because the Patrick Mahomes, the Lamar Jackson, these guys, cassette, they will wear out a pass rush. So it's just intriguing to see how we would have played in this era. But as you were doing your interview with your guys, what were the stories like when you were talking to Ron Jaworski and and Randall and, and Michael and those guys?
2: It was really interesting, Aeneas, in because you had – Randall was drafted, um, I think, a year or two before me, and he was drafted to be the heir apparent to Ron Jaworski. And a lot of people don't know, my last year, Ron was – my first year, rather. Ron was on the team. He – um, was a first, second down quarterback. Buddy was trying to implement Randall in because the plan was the following year, Randall was going to be a starting quarterback and they were going to move on from Jaws. Jaws would play first and second down. Buddy would put Randall in the game in, on third down. I mean, this happened all year long. It was the craziest thing that you'd ever want to see. So you knew that Ron felt some type of way about that, you know, because he wants to stay on the field and convert the third down. But Randall comes on. And more times than not, he was gonna run and he was gonna scramble, you know, for a first down. Mm-hmm. So the dynamic, you know, of those two quarterbacks and what they went through in 1986 was amazing to me. Because under normal circumstances, you know, human nature would say that that Ron would still feel some type of way about that situation and how Randall supplanted him.
1: Yeah. Right. And
2: then and then you fast forward to Donovan McNabb. And Donovan McNabb, you know, having Michael Fick come in after, you know, his off the field issues. And it's been documented that Andy Reid and Jeffrey Lurie and Dave and, and, and Joe Banner, um, the brain trust of the Philadelphia Eagles actually went and had a conversation with Donovan about bringing in Michael. And then how a couple of years later, the same thing transpired where Donovan's, you know, play began to wane a little bit. He began to have some issues. Right. And Michael had an opportunity to play and the next thing you know Donovan gets traded to the Washington you know football team and now Michael Vick is now the starting quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles I mean it was just it was a phenomenal um, interview because of those dynamics and then to be able to see the respect that all four of those guys even through all of that still have for each other and how they talked about each other and you know randall talked about how jaws helped him and 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 michael talked about how you know donovan feeling comfortable enough to to okay him coming you know getting a second chance with the philadelphia eagles and then that whole transition of how randall replaced jaws and how michael vick replaced donovan um, to be able to have them on and, and and see the reverence that they, you know, still have for each other, you know, was a great thing.
3: How much did you guys sense as teammates that some the overtones are possibly prejudices of an African-American quarterback replacing a Caucasian brother, Ron Jaworski? Did you guys feel any of that? Oh, you could feel it was palpable in the city.
2: Um, not only among the fans, because you got to remember, Ron Jaworski actually quarterbacked you know this th- this Eagles franchise you know to their first modern day Super Bowl. So there was a major reverence in the city of Philadelphia for for Ron Jaworski, even though you know his 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 skills had eroded, and you know Randall was was going to be the new guy when the shift was made among the fans, among the media, and even some of the guys on the team felt like, you know, that wasn't the move to be made. That was, you know, so there was some animosity there. But, you know, it was a situation where the Eagles, along with the Cardinals at that time, you know, resided in the basement of the NFC East. There was a a, a turnover on the roster. So it wasn't just the quarterback position, but it was across the board. But it was even magnified that much more when you had, you know, a Caucasian quarterback whom right. the city and the media revered, being replaced by a scrambling African American quarterback, and it was still not, you know, the politically correct right. thing at that time. You know that African American quarterbacks would take over those types of positions, and and it wasn't believed that they could flourish in those in those situations.
3: So that also gives us probably the, the mindset behind Coach Buddy Ryan, right? Because some coaches would have been pressured right. to not do this. So tell me about Buddy. What, what was your ex, uh, first experience with Coach Buddy Ryan?
2: I, you know, listen, I, I thought the guy was crazy. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a young guy. You know, when I got drafted by the Eagles in this, I was 20 years old. I was the youngest player in the NFL. Oh. I wasn't even legal when I got drafted. Um, you know you get to training camp and you know buddy is just cussing everybody out and you know I, I had never experienced that that type of intensity and that type of workload you know in all of my years of playing football um, as I look back at it now in retrospect I understand it wholeheartedly because what he was doing is he was trying to figure out just like when he came to Arizona t- that first training camp was there was hell it. you know. And what he was trying to figure out, OK, who wants to be here and who's willing to sacrifice and who's willing to put in the work to be here? Because the guys that don't want to do the work and the guys that don't want to sacrifice, you know, I got to get those guys out of here because in order for me to change the culture, I've got to bring in guys that are going to buy in to what it is that I'm trying to do. And that's what it was like on a daily basis, on a daily basis. And for the young guys, because I was drafted by him, for the young guys, you had to, you had a rite of passage that you had to get through. I didn't even think he knew my name because for two years, he never called me by my name. I was 59.
3: How did your teammates help 20 years old, a rookie, how was it in the locker room? What teammates helped you get through it? Or did you well, need help getting through that?
2: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, listen, th- there was a lot of transition. There was a lot of animosity. You know, when I got there, we we drafted four linebackers that year in the draft. Um, there were another seven or eight veterans that were, excuse me, that were on the roster. Um, I had some guys telling me to go right when I should have been going left. You know, but I was fortunate enough to have one guy. <laughs> Um, one veteran named Gary Cobb, you know, he took all the young guys under his wing. And one day, you know, he made it pretty clear. He was like, you know, you guys don't think all of y'all going to make the team. You know, as rookies, you know, you, you, think that just because you are drafted, you're going to make the team. You know, we, we had no idea what the process was like. So he says, not all of you guys are going to make the team. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, we, we were all drafted. He was like, listen, there are, other, there are seven or other eight guys here who have NFL experience. You know, the majority of those guys are going to play. We're going to keep, you know, too deep at each position. But understand that there's going to be some, some spots on this roster for some of you guys that can play special teams. And it dawned on me at that point in time that that is how I was going to make the team. You know, so I focused my attention. Yeah, I was still studying. I was still preparing because I knew I had to learn the defense, even though I wasn't getting a lot of reps at the linebacker position. But what I quickly realized is that, you know what, if I can show them the type of player that I can be on special teams, somehow that might translate in their minds that at some point in time down the road, an opportunity might present itself for me to show them what type of linebacker I could be. You know, and sometimes as young guys, that's how you have to, you, you have to approach it. So I'm you know, I'm forever indebted, you know, to Gary for not only teaching us how to be professionals because he said, you know, if you're going to be a professional, this is what you do. This is where you go, this is where you don't go. This is what you do, this is what you don't do. This is how you study. This is how you prepare. I mean, he gave us all the tools that was necessary and he mentored us along the way. Um, but I'm forever grateful that I had a guy like that and I'm forever grateful, you know, for the opportunity to be able to showcase what I could do special teams wise. Because had he not, had he not shed a light on those things for us, you know, I wouldn't have never, you know, been able to enjoy a 13-year career.
3: I had no idea. You mentioned Gary Cobb and he's worked obviously with the Legends community. Mm-hmm. Before we were doing this podcast, when I was thinking about you, I said Seth was a 5-2. I was thinking of a way to put this a five-tool linebacker. What are the five tools I, I was referencing? You can rush the passer, you can play the run, you're very good in coverage, you can intercept the ball, and the fifth thing, you can play special teams. Mm-hmm. And now you bring that up, that Gary mentoring you guys, telling you guys, right. and bring it to your attention, special teams will be the way that you're able to get on board Right, And once you were on board, as we say, the rest is history. Here's another question I would ask you. Seth, what was it like coming from Philadelphia and Buddy bringing what I, what I call some of his uh, tested troops to Arizona? What was that like? And what was it like coming into a culture where we hadn't won a lot, but you knew what Buddy was capable of? What was that like? Well, it
2: wasn't only the fact that you know I knew what you know what Buddy could do, and I knew what he was like, but we played against you guys twice a year, every year, every year, um, and it was never a situation. All the years that we, you know, that playing against you guys, all my years in the league, it wasn't a situation that you guys didn't have talent. It was just trying to figure out, okay, why is it that they can't that they can't win? So the decision to come was twofold. That I know that they got talent, and second of all, I know I've seen Buddy make the trans the trans the transformation, and I believe that he can you know do something special with the talent that's, that's there. It, it was just you know it, it it was it was a good move. It was not only a good career move, a good financial move, but a, it was also an opportunity to try to change to do something special.
3: I'll never forget you, Clyde Simmons, and the late uh roommate of mine, Andre Waters, mm-hmm. man. and just the personality and what you guys brought, the leadership. Hopefully I hold back tears because Seth, you didn't know, but so Buddy gets, got the job after my uh my third year. So going to my fourth year. I was a restricted free agent. And my wife was getting her MBA at the University of Illinois. It's, and I was considering whether I was gonna go back to Arizona. So I told my wife, I said, I don't think I'm going back to Arizona once Buddy got the job. I said, because I heard Buddy wasn't a, a player's coach. Well, that's not true at all, as you know. I thought I was gonna get that over on my wife. And, but it turned out, she says, what are you talking about? And she, you know, how wives ask questions, probing questions. And, and what it was, I was afraid. I really, I really wasn't sure that I could play in the system where the cornerback was on the island. So, man, we, my wife and I prayed, and we said, well, we sense to go back to Arizona. And I'll never forget, once I signed, this is when I found out the power of a coach and a coach's belief in a person. As soon as I went back and I signed back, the first person I saw was Rob Ryan, Rex's, uh, one of the twins, Rex mm-hmm. and Rob. Rob put his arms around me, Seth, when I was in the weight room, came up to me. He says, Aeneas, you will make all pro. You'll lead the league in interceptions. You'll make the Pro Bowl. This defense is perfectly suited for you because I saw you do it at Southern University. And I'm telling you, Seth, like I said, I'm holding it in, man, because that was a game changer. And that's when I learned the power of coaches speaking into players and realizing sometimes when players don't know what they're capable of doing for the coach to verbalize it mm-hmm. and no doubt about it, man, that training camp, uh, my trainer, as you know, uh, Mac Newton, it was a game change, changed my life. And I was obviously the first year I made the pro bowl first year I led the league and interceptions, first year I made all pro. But it was because of your leadership. And I'll never forget, I want to put on this podcast, you understood, you and Clyde understood the connection of not just on the field, but off the field. Because when you guys came in, you brought us together as a defense. We were even at your house. And I say this is a joke that I'll never forget.
2: <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking
3: about. I'll never forget, man. We at so we at we at your house. You remember this, and you had uh, baked cornbread, and I and I never forget. So everybody, all the defense out in your den somewhere. We we're all sitting around, and I went in the kitchen, and man, I saw that cornbread it was fresh. Nobody had touched it. Nobody in the kitchen. I look around, and I love the inside of the cornbread, right? So I go in, I cut the center out, eat it come back and sit down with the rest of the defense. Everybody joking. Next thing you next day I know, you get up, go in the kitchen, you come back out the kitchen with the pan in your hand, with just the sides, the corners of the cornbread, mad at the world asking, who ate the, the who ate the center of the cornbread? I mean, man, I was so nervous man, I'm like, oh man, I gotta, I gotta show my cool man, cause second kill somebody, man. <laughs> But but, it really, when I think back, those were moments that helped defenses become great. Mm-hmm. It's not just the X's and O's and not just the coaching, but it's the camaraderie and players getting to know each other on and off the field. And I thought you and Clyde did a tremendous job doing that. Why was that important to you?
2: It, it, it was important because, listen, we, we, we learned it in Philadelphia. You know, I mean – we, we had one day a week, you know, where we got together as a defense, okay? And we got together, we went to dinner. And when dinner was over, you know, the guys that were married, the guys that, you know, they went their way, they went home, and the guys that was going to go out and, you know, while out, they were going to go out and do their thing. But it was important, and Buddy instilled in us, you know, early on, you know, it, it, it's hard for a team or a unit be successful if you don't know each other because if you don't know each other and you and you don't care enough about each other when you get tired and the grind gets going you know then it becomes about you but when you're a unit and you're a brotherhood and you look at that guy next to you and you're tired and you know he's tired then it becomes bigger than just you you're not playing just for yourself your plan for that guy that's next to you. And you know that when you go on the film study on Monday morning, that the eye in the sky don't lie and everything is right there for everybody to see and the accountability, the coaches are gonna hold you accountable, but you hold each other accountable as teammates. So coming there, yeah, we want I wanted to be successful, you know? So, and and you know, throughout the first couple of weeks, I didn't see, you know, that camaraderie. So I'm like, okay, let's do something to try to bring the entire team together. So I'm like, okay, let's do a fish fry at at the house and bring all the guys together and try to figure out a way where, you know, because we were new to to y'all's team and I'm trying to get to know Aeneas and I'm trying to get to know Eric Hill and I'm trying to get to know Eric Swan. I'm trying to get to know all these guys because if I don't get to know them and they don't get to know me, then how do we create the camaraderie that's necessary in order for us to win? When you're trying to build a team and you're trying to get buy-in, if everybody's not in it for each other, you have no shot whatsoever at winning.
3: You know, one of the things about synergy, Seth, is those times together, I didn't understand that. And that's what you guys modeled and what was so important. It, it really set the foundation uh, for that 1998 team. Mm -hmm. Uh, when we were able to finally go in and upset the Cowboys in the divisional round and uh, lose close game to Minnesota. But it was just that foundation that you guys brought as it relates to not just the defense, just the mentality of playing Mm -hmm. and understanding how important it was that it wasn't just on the field, but you modeled how important it was to be together. One thing we've experienced, we've lost what we call a legend that played with both of us, Kwame Lassiter. Mm-hmm. Uh, losing Kwame around last year, around this time, still continue to keep Eric and the family up in prayer. But you also, while playing, lost a teammate while playing with them, Jerome Brown. What, what is that like, and how do, how have you processed those things while a player, a teammate losing Jerome Brown, and now losing a legend like our fellow teammate Kwame Lassiter.
2: I don't think you ever process it Aeneas, because you know you know I, I I get I still get choked up man because for me, not only did I lose Jerome, but I lost Andre waters, I lost Wes Hopkins and I lost Reggie white. you know you take it beyond that. you know I was with junior say a week before you know we lost him. We lost Dave Durison. I mean there's so many guys that we've lost and then you know it, it hit home again and i was just on this morning on a zoom call this morning um i'm doing an initiative with the american heart association um and they've got their heart ball coming up and they had that big fundraiser and we were talking about it this morning um, about heart disease and heart health and things of that nature and and, and brad sesmat actually um, you know, Brad, he actually emceed um, um, the deal. So it, we were doing a Q&A and we were talking about Kwame. It, it never, you never deal with it. You never process it because, um, you know, last year when Kwame passed away, I was actually in Philly working and I, we were doing the post game show and I got a text and it was almost like I needed a moment just to step off the set because I was in total shock. Um, so you never, and, and when you, when I'm talking about Kwame, it's like you know, Kwame got drafted. You know, I think the year after I got to Arizona. You know, so he was like one of those guys where th- that this is my this is my baby brother, man. I mean, this is the guy that I helped raise up in the game. And with Jerome, it was the same exact way. Jerome came in two years after I got to Philadelphia. You know, and I can remember. And Jerome was supremely talented you know, supremely talented. I mean, when you're in college, you can get away without not working out and not preparing and whatnot. And Jerome began to, you know, take on some injuries. And I, you know, started having conversations. I'm like, man, you got to get yourself, you know, you got to get in shape. You got to get yourself prepared. And he had just turned the corner, Nia's. I mean, I still have a video on one of my old phones where he is actually bicycling. You know, he's got on this outfit, you know, this cycling outfit. He's like, yeah, I'm getting in shape. I just want you to know I'm getting ready. And in a matter of weeks, man, he was gone. And then you got a guy like Kwame who had a successful career and had this Kwame Lasseter Foundation that was doing work with um, leukemia because one of his kids have it. And it's like, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, and I didn't know, but he had, he knew he had a heart issue and he made a decision to make the lifestyle changes And one day he's like, oh, I don't eat meat anymore. I'm a vegan. I'm like, what you talking about, man? You know, but we don't talk about stuff like that. You know, in 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 the world of football, we're bred to show no pain and show no weakness. You know, so he's not sharing with us that that's what's going on. I find out afterwards, you know, that he really needed a pacemaker. But he made the decision that, you know what, my life is in God's hands. I'm gonna change some things. I'm gonna change how I eat. I'm gonna change how I work out. He was into yoga. He was into, you know, getting himself in shape. And when you looked at Kwame, he was the pitcher of health. You would have never thought that anything was wrong with him. And all of a sudden he has a massive heart attack and he's gone at 49 years old. You never process that. You never get over it. I never get over it. I mean, I'm fighting back the emotions of all of these guys that are no longer with us anymore. Because it's like, how can they be gone? How can I lose so many brethren in the game? You know, to whatever the issues have been, how could they be gone? You know, but you know, when the man upstairs calls you home, you're going home. It it is what it is.
3: Kwame is one of the wisest guys I've ever been around in my life. And just his his wit and his wisdom, his wit always included wisdom. And I mean, anytime I've seen him, it's literally like I'm seeing my brother and like we've seen each other every day. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: How important is it, Seth, for us to, I don't know if I use the word check, encourage each other when we do see each other? How you doing? How you really doing? Is there anything that you're going through that we need to know? In other words, how would you help legends better help each other when we do come together?
2: Well, I mean, listen, there has to be a mind shift. And, you know, it's already it's it's underway, but it's, it's still got a long way to go. The mind shift has to be is that, you know what, I'm your brother and there's nothing that you're going through that I won't be here for you for. Okay, a lot of us think that sometimes when we're going through things that we have to we have to travel this road on our own, because like I said, we've been bred to show no pain. To show no weakness you know we're like Superman we'll bleed on the inside we don't ever let you see it on the outside and that's detrimental to us that's detrimental to all of these guys you know that we're talking about how do we have those conversations without feeling this sense of weakness how do we get to a point where we understand and know that we're not in this life you know by ourselves we're not in this life alone not only as football players but as human beings you know, as men of God, or, or we're not in this walk alone, you know. And until we come to the realization and understand that, you know, then that the change and the shift doesn't happen. So when we see each other, not only is it, hey, man, how you doing? I remember what it was like back in the day. Hey, man, how you doing? You know, how are you really doing? Is there anything that I can do for you? And, you know, is there anything you want to talk about? You know, is there anything that we can converse about? You know, how's your family? How's your wife? How's your kids? You know, you know, dare I say, you know, what's your financial situation like? You know, can I be of assistance to you in any way? And until we can get there, you know, then we're gonna continue to have some problems, but that's what needs to happen. And then small, minute steps, we're starting to get there, but it needs to get there faster because, you know, you're talking about lives hanging in the balance.
3: And they're also just through the league and through the Players Association, player care, their lifelines. So their numbers, sometimes guys may not feel comfortable and they feel better with being able to pick up the phone and call somebody. So anybody that's listening, the resources that are available to help if a person is struggling. Here's a quick question, set: What advice would you give current players who are in the locker room with guys? Because you mentioned your epiphany came when you turned 28 years old. Mm -hmm. You came into the league at 20. So that's eight years later. What caused your epiphany and what advice do you have for current guys?
2: Well, listen, the greatest advice is that when you come to the league, you know, whether you're 20 like myself, you're 21, 22 years old, is that, you know, you really don't know anything. You just don't. You're still a child, you know. And the tough part about, you know, being an NFL player you know the lion's share of these young guys who come into the league that step out of poverty into, um, you know, wealth right out right out the gate is that there's a dynamic shift that happens in your family structure um, because you come from poverty, and I like to I liken it to this, you know, you become your mother's husband, your father's brother, and your siblings' dad, you know and you're thrust into you're thrust into a a role that you're not prepared for. And then at the other end of the spectrum you got a financial guy, you got an agent, and these guys are working for you, you know, and some of them are pure in their intentions and some of them aren't. Some of them I mean listen, it's all about the commission, you know. And then, you know, you might find some guys that that genuinely care about you. Educate yourself on as, as many things as you possibly can. Do not hire an agent that's not teaching you and telling you what the process is so that you know when he goes in to negotiate for you, what's being said and what's being done. Don't hire someone to manage your money that's not willing to teach you along the way because when your career is over and you get to the end, if his intentions aren't pure, when the commissionable income for him stops because now the salary stops for you, that relationship now ends. So now you're stuck holding, you know, the ransom, the ransom share of what you earn with no knowledge about how to manage it and what to do with it and where to put it and how to grow it and how to share it. You know, so that education piece its like I see so many guys they come in at 21 years old and they retire at 31 years old and that's 10 years of life and they haven't grown whatsoever. You know, and then life has to beat them up in every way imaginable for them to, you know, get to where they need to be. You need to continue to grow emotionally, intellectually, more importantly, spiritually along the way so that by the time you're done. OK, your identity is not wrapped up in football, but your identity is wrapped up in something bigger than than football. And you're able to walk away from the game without any regrets and have no feelings and no ill will towards the game about, you know, what you didn't get out of the game and what the game doesn't give you anymore, because the game only owes you the years that you play. When you're done, you're done. And and, and that's the fact. So how do you begin to educate guys? Um, to better themselves in every way imaginable as they go along. The end goal isn't the money. You know, the end goal is your growth and what you're able to do with the money, not only for your family, but in a, in a philanthropic type of way after you're done. Seth, you wrote a book, didn't you? Did you I write didn't write a book, but I got a whole bunch of information and a whole no, bunch of writers that need I You can
3: write a book. No, I'm, I'm serious about that. Because it goes back to what you mentioned at 28 a light came on. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you mentioned it thus far, but what was that light? Why Why at age 28? How did you know this?
2: Well, listen, a- Aeneas, I, I'm an avid reader. I wish I could turn my turn my, my laptop around and show you the books that I have. And I read all the time. It wasn't always that way. Um, it, it, it really wasn't always that way. I don't know what got me into reading, but I love to read. So I was reading this book, and the it's called mindset and it talks about a myriad of things you know and i was having some going through some things with my son and someone recommended the book and the author talked about um the development of the mind and how as parents we need to be patient with our kids because there's a segment of our brain that doesn't develop until we're like 21, 22 years old, maybe even 23 years old, where the things that we're telling our kids, they can't even, they hear it, but they can't even receive, it, let alone apply it. So then it took me back to, you know, when I was, when I was young, when I was 28 years old, I can remember picking up the phone one day and calling my mom. I was like, mom, thanks. She's like, boy, thanks for what? I said, thanks for not letting me hang out at Charlie's house because you know he smoked weed and his mom was never home. Thank you for, you know, giving me a curfew. Thank you for having, you know, for making me go to church every Sunday. Thank you, you know, for having your finger on the pulse of everything that was going on in my life because had you not done that, I would never be able, I, would never, I wouldn't be where I am today, okay? So when you talk about that light, it's about, you know, your growth and how you come to realization of the things, you know, that are going on in your life and in your world. I can't say that it was any one thing, but I do know by the time, you know, I was 28 years old, 29 years old, you know, even though, you know, I was blessed to live my dream, there were some things going on in my life that, you know, that everybody didn't see and wasn't, you know, a party to, but life was beating me up, man. I mean, I was divorced and, you know, there was all kinds of things that were going on. In my life um that contribute to the light coming on and and you know how do you share those moments and how do you get people to understand that those moments are real that those moments are coming in the moment of those moments what do you do how do you deal how do you make the shifts how do you make those changes
3: in your life final part i want to cover is the set join the show now tell me about that how did you start a podcast and and you're still doing work back in Philadelphia with TV right. as well? So <clears throat>
2: it, it, it started after I retired. I wanted to, I felt like I could go into broadcasting because of, you know, my knowledge of the game. So the whole first year that the NFL Network was on the air, I was on air, you know, and I was horrible. I was <laughs> terrible. They, listen, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You know, because there's a there's a market difference in this between, you know, standing and doing an interview with, you know, a reporter at your locker and right. you being on camera and that red light comes on and you know that there's a couple of million people out there watching you. You know, it's, it's a massive difference. So that first year went by and I actually hated it. I hated it. I did it for a whole year, but I hated it. I hated the business of it. I hated, you know, everything about it. And I really didn't want to be in broadcasting anymore. Um, It just so happened that an opportunity presented itself for me, Um, an an agent called me when Donovan was leaving Fox. This guy wanted to throw my name into the hat for the job. Well, I didn't get it. And he connected me with NBC Sports or Comcast in Philadelphia. And I was like, okay, I'll try it. I'm, you know, I, I know what the business is like, but I was ready at that time to actually do it. And I really, over the years, I've gotten pretty good at it. So what I wanted to do is like, I want to do my own podcast. It's one thing to do a show, directors in your I B B telling you, right. you know, uh, we're going to talk about this. We're going to go to break here, you know, cut, you know, all of that. I wanted to do a show that was mine, that I could control, that I could talk about what I wanted to, that I could bring my guests on, that I could talk about all the things in the game that I wanted to talk to that time wouldn't allow me to do in my duties on the pre and post game for NBC Sports Philly for the Eagles. Two years ago, I actually started my own podcast. It didn't grow. The season was over. I made the mistake of stopping as soon as the season was over. You know, So you, you can't do that. If you're gonna do a podcast, you gotta do a podcast every week because people want the content, they want the information. So I decided this off season, in the midst of the pandemic, I decided, okay, I'm going to do a podcast. Okay, the first couple of shows I had on Charles Barkley, you know, I had on people like that. And then when this Zoom thing hit, I turned to my team. I'm like, we got to do Zoom. That's, right. that's the way to go. You know, so then we started to do the Zoom and realizing that I could have multiple people on at, at, at the same time. You know, one of my first Zoom shows was a show where I had the four quarterbacks on. So I had the four quarterbacks on. I had Harold Carmichael, who's just, who's going into the Hall of Fame this year. Mike quinn D.
3: Southern at- University. D. Oh, yeah. Southern University. Let's make sure we know. get that out. Harold Carmichael, all right?
2: <laughs> so so I, I had those, I had, you know, the. the so my thing was, okay, I want to get the top players at every position on a podcast. Um, and do a show and have those guys interact, and because they're from different eras, and um, and that was the genesis of it, you know. So now um, I do it every Tuesday from 7.30, 730 to eight thirty. I'm on YouTube, we're on Facebook Live. Um, you know, we do giveaways. I'm I'm about to implement, you know, a chalk talk segment into it. You know, in the next couple of weeks, and I think that you know, while it's it's good to you know, service, you know, the Philly market because I work in that market. In order for me to really make this thing grow, I think I'm going to have to expand it and start talking more overall
3: NFL. Seth, this has been outstanding. The synergy here and listening to you, man. And let's continue to get the word out for guys to genuinely, when we see each other, uh, connect and ask questions And even make sure we keep on our person that number for the lifeline. Because sometimes it's just guys being able to call somebody, even if they don't know who they are, because they may not feel comfortable telling us everything.
2: Right. And listen, there are a lot of resources that are available to retired players. Um, You know, and, you know, the PA, the alumni associations, you know, they try to do the best job that they can. The legends they try to do the best job they can to get that information out. But sometimes the information just doesn't get out, you know, and sometimes, you know, these guys are suffering through things and they're like, nobody cares. You know, there's, there's not a voice, you know, to, there's not an ear for my voice. There's not a shoulder for me to lean on, you know, we've got to figure out a way, you know, to ensure that every single guy who is an NFL brethren, that he understands and knows what these resources are and where they are and how to access them. You know, because even I listen, I've been, I've been, this is my 21st year of retirement, Anil, and I'm still learning and figuring out what resources are available to me, you know, and how my life can be enhanced by some of these resources. So for some of these guys who, who are experiencing, you know, helplessness and hopelessness, you know, there is hope that is available. Right. But if they don't know about it they can't access it they can't turn their situation around they can't get the help that they need and we need to figure out a better way of getting this information to all of these guys so that you know so that they can turn their lives around and have you know productive lives and and extend their their lives from a health perspective as well
3: and one of the things Tracy Pearlman Troy Vincent and the entire legends uh, directors and coordinators and these guys are throughout the region. So just a matter of reaching out. Right. Seth, this has been great. This has been fantastic. Thanks for joining us. And the best is yet to come, man. You got it, my friend. Anytime.
2: This has been the NFL Legends podcast. To provide feedback or request a topic for discussion, email us at nfllegends@nfl.com.
3: at nfl.com.